good to see everybody here this morning. I appreciate my extended family coming and, uh, and uh, being able to sit here and then share with each other for just a little bit. Um, I had the privilege of going to uh, Walnut Grove Baptist Church this morning at 9 o'clock and sharing our story uh, with them. And uh, Such a blessing as Pastor Chris Parker is there uh, as their lead pastor and our uh, our lives, Chris and I's lives, are, are intertwined uh, because of not only uh, Parkwood Kings Mountain that become Battleground Community Church, uh, but also even before there was a, a battleground, there was Chris Parker investing in my family. And, and so our lives became intertwined with the church plant, and, and God now has sent him uh, to Walnut Grove. Uh, what I wanted to talk to you about is that which preceded all of that. Uh, the catalyst, if you will, this first step of obedience by faith um, that flipped a dominoes down that led us not only Chris and myself both stepping away from businesses that we had invested our lives into, um, but planning a church and, and, and to where we are uh, today. So last week, if you, were, if you watched online, you, you got sort of my introduction. That's sort of where I wanted to begin this, this morning, with Philippians 1. So I would invite you to open your Bibles. There's not going to be anything on the screen. Uh, Philippians 1, that's what we looked at last week. This is, as it were, my, my life verse, and I pray that you would consider it, maybe making it yours, or at least making a, a life verse. Philippians 1, verse 20 says this, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full assurance, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Verse 21, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And so what I want us to ask ourselves is what we began to ask last week is what would it look like to live this life like dying is your gain. Another way to say in this is how much would you have to treasure Christ in this life to see your death as a gain for you? It's our, sort of my desire today. The truth is this. We all treasure something. All of us today, all of your friends, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter what you believe, you are treasuring something. But that which you are treasuring might not necessarily, unless it's Christ, lead you to live lives of missional sacrifice to make an eternal difference in someone else's life. That's my desire for us today. That you would embrace a life, whatever it costs you, whatever age you are, whatever season you find yourself, of a missional sacrifice for the good of someone else. It's from my journal in Congo, which I, I didn't do that good a job at writing. Christina done a far better job than me. That uh, I wrote this while over in Congo. We should live life like we're ready to leave. Living simply and with clarity of what we desire to accomplish. We must be people on mission and get rid of everything that impedes our mission. That was my mindset during that season of life. It was that, you've heard that theme, we don't live on a cruise ship, we live on a battleship. This kind of missional warfare that what God has called us to was clear and we needed to get things out of the way. And I, I wonder, is that how we live today? Or are we not a little bit like the Ephesian church to where our life of missional warfare has begun to cool over the years. Not only that verse. I would say probably the verse that tipped me, that got inside my very soul and led to our adoption was Ephesians 1 and verse 3 to 6. Ephesians 1 verses 3 to 6. Says, says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, 
that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He blessed us in the Beloved. God chose us as children before there was time and space, before anything that was created. He chose you to be His child. If you can get a hold of that, You go ahead. It is vast beyond what we can hope. But this got inside of me. And this led to both what you see on your notes. The call and the why. I have your notes laid out. Sort of like chapters in a book. Um, The heading and then the principle. You see brothers and sisters. We don't have the right to tell our stories. And we all have a story to tell. Unless the gospel is declared. And so I just wanted to impart to you as we go um, just some things that we learned along the way. The first is something that we've been learning in our study of Revelation. Authentic faith is not a perfect faith, but it is an obedient faith. and It is a faith that obeys what God puts in front of you. That will be an important principle for us. And so I'm telling you a story about not about perfect people, whereas messed up or jacked up, if you want to call it that, as anybody else in the room. We are not perfect people. We were simply obedient. And what we learned is if you step out in faith and do what God calls you to do, He will put in front of you what you need. He will put provision in front of you. He will put people in front of you. He will put resources in front of you. Battleground community, if we are going to grow, we got to get that. God provides for us. You have been provided for your whole life. Our God provides for His own. This is our story. This is from my perspective. You see, this is much like reading the resurrection accounts in the gospel narratives. Every gospel account you read, every narrative you read, tells it from a little bit of a different perspective. So by reading all of them, you can gain more of the whole picture. Either anybody in my family, including my extended family, could stand up here and tell you this story from their perspective, and you would learn something new. But this is from mine. We began our desire because my call to to adopt came first uh, in my It was clear Ephesians 1 was inside of me. I was going through a season of intense growth in my own life. And I wanted to display this spiritual adoption. I wanted to put it on display. It was so good. I had been going to church my whole life. I've never heard such things before. And I had to do something with it. It was bubbling inside of me. And when I use the word calling, let me explain my terms. I don't mean some mystical, ooey-gooey feeling that some people have. By calling, I mean this. When the king calls, you come. From the moment you put your faith in Christ, we bow to Christ as Savior and Lord. And he calls the shots from then. And when the king calls us, we do what he says to do. That's what I mean by call. I had been... Like I said, going through some intense growth. And one of the books that I was led to was a book called Knowing God. This is my original copy. This is a rather old copy. They look a little bit different now. Let me just give you a little bit of the flavor of what was going on in my mind that led to this. J.I. Packer says this. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child. And having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life. It means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught. Everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old. Everything that is distinctly Christian and is opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. It was in the midst of pondering that that I find myself in the pursuit of being an elder at Parkwood Baptist Church. And it was in the middle of this training. And I can only tell you my experience. That the Lord put in my mind a little African boy. And he was staring at me. He didn't say anything. He just stared at me. And he wouldn't go away. 
And I got a three rule I live by in life. If you say something mean to me, you got about three minutes before maybe I'll say something back. I practice a three rule. It keeps me safe. It keeps me doing dumb things. And so I, I figured if I gave it three days, it'd go away. Or maybe three weeks, it wouldn't go away. And I knew what the Lord was calling me to do. He was calling me to put this gospel, this gospel that I said I loved, He was calling us to put it on display. And I wasn't too excited about it. I wasn't. You see, our oldest child, I think, was nine. I think Rachel was nine at the time, or Jacob was 13. Uh, we could go away, even overnight. Kids would do fine. They could cook. They could clean. They could take care of things. Me and Christina was having some independence for the first time in our life. We was looking forward to the kids growing up, and me and her would, would enjoy the empty nest and chase the American dream just like everybody else would. But I knew this. That if I embraced this, if I said yes to this, this was going to affect my wife in ways that I didn't have and I knew. But I knew how hard it was going to be. And it was. And she's bore the, the weight of, of most of the things that we went through, even in this journey. But I submitted myself to obedience toward it. But I said, Lord, I, my wife ain't going to have it. So, you know, she's been... Having children, raising children, homeschooling children all these years, you know. And I said, so would you, would you please, Lord, if you want us to do this, would you call her? Would you tell her to do it? Because I don't want to, you know. Fast forward to a year, I never mentioned it. I told a group of guys I lived in accountability with about it, so they would hold me accountable. Uh, but a year went forward, and one day we were coming home from church, and Parkwood was doing a Ukrainian sponsorship that year. That was, they brought over children from an orphanage over there, and um, you could sponsor them, and the goal was for you to adopt them. And um, I didn't think anything about it. And we're coming home from church one day, and Christina says, why don't we do that? And I said, well, honey, you know they want you to adopt those kids, don't you? She said, well, duh. And uh, so at that moment, I realized that the Lord had answered my prayer and called my wife to adopt separate from me. And so we did what every good American family does. We went on vacation. Uh, we went to the beach, and our kids didn't know anything about it. And so we, we talked about it with them. Uh, sometimes your children have more faith than their parents. And, um, they, were, they were not only willing but excited to. We, we tried to the best we could to count the cost. Uh, we all signed on the line because this would consume our family for the next two years and change the whole outlook and trajectory of our whole family. But we agreed to it. We, we had a couple of upfront commitments. One was that we would be open to adopt a sibling group uh, because no one, not many other people would be. And the second is that we would put no conditions on the call. Though that wasn't absolutely true because we did try to put some conditions. It's a little lesson for us all. Uh, you can put conditions on what God calls you to want to if you want to. He just ignored us. <laughs> you know, he just ignored us. And uh, So we knew Africa. But where would we adopt? Well, remember our principle. You simply got to be willing to obey what God puts in front of you. And just so happened, we had a, Somebody that goes to our church just so happened. There's nothing in our life that just so happens. Uh, I say that facetiously. Just so happened I had a girl named Amy who went to our church. She worked for an adoption agency. And it just so happened that she had just got back from a new country that they were adopting out of called the Democratic Republic of Congo. And so Christina and Amy went to coffee. And as Amy described the Congo to Christina. She describes that her heart leaping. She knew that this was the place. And so we embraced it. And so then we had a calling. We had a clear calling to adopt. We had a clear calling to adopt from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. We weighed the cost. And as I look out and I said the same thing to Wanted Grove, I, I see a predominantly white congregation. We weighed the cost that our family would never look the same again. But listen, some of us will need to get this in our heads. What do you think heaven's going to look like? Should we not embrace in our homes, in our churches, where we're headed? Question is, you know, what our 
would our church, would a church, could I go anywhere with, with my family and they be accepted? So our journey began. You see that on your notes. The journey begins. The principle is this. God chooses life. We obey by faith. So July the 5th, 2012, we put in our application. And this, we knew what was coming was about six months worth of intense paperwork. Paperwork, physical, physicals, background checks. I mean, we got checked from one end to the other, literally, um, from the time we ever, you know, stole a piece of candy was going to come out on it. And it, and it did, and uh, we embraced it. What we didn't expect is two weeks later. Uh, two weeks later, Christina gets a call from Amy and says, I've sent you an email. Um, we have a sibling group. And you, need to, you need to go home and look at it. And so picture number one, if you'll throw it up on the screen. Um, well, we received four pictures. These were two of them. Uh, it, was, it was the night before me and Christina both got home where we could look at the pictures together. Um, and this was the truth. We sit there and looked at these two uh, sad, older, yet beautiful children. Um, I told you we said no conditions, but we did because we put on the paperwork that we wanted our children really, really young. Um, those are not young children. God chose the children he wanted us to have. Uh, but the question, and as you keep picture number one up there for a minute, because I want you to put yourself in our position. The question was a simple question. Do you accept them or do you reject them? So look at the picture. What would you do? What would you do? This was not a hallmark moment. In the call of obedience, there's no rainbows or unicorns. There's only war, brothers and sisters. There's only war. And we knew this was a battle cry. We looked at the pictures. We finally had to try to go to sleep which didn't happen much that night. And as we lay in the bed, uh, we were sitting there discussing, and here was our decision. It is God who chooses life, not us. And God can open a door and close a door anytime he wants to. But as far as we're concerned, we're going to say yes and commit our journey to the Lord. And so that's what we did. As Jeff just got through telling us, here at Battleground Community Church, we choose life from the womb to the tomb. But listen, this is important. You choose life not merely by how you vote, but by how you live. Your life declares to you what you believe about life. How we live and how we love and how we care for people. Does not James 1.27 tell us that the, the true devotion of, to Christ and our faith is to take care of the powerless and to be holy. And brothers and sisters, they're not multiple choice questions. Still had six months of paperwork to begin. But the moment we said yes to our children, they were taken out of the orphanage and placed into foster care. In other words, before they even knew who we were, we were already redeeming them. We were already caring for them. We were already taking care of them. Their life began to improve um, picture number two. They begin to send us, as, as we did this paperwork, update pictures. In other words, as we begin to, the, the children begin to eat and, and be cared for a little bit better, we begin to see them grow. And they got bigger and bigger and bigger as we watched them over the next six months. And so December 26, uh, two thousand. In 12, we received that which we'd been waiting for, which was the adoption decree. This was where the Congolese government judges, where the judge declares that those two children are our children. Uh, we only had one more form to complete. In those countries, in this country specifically, you must get what you call an exit letter. So just because the children are yours, it doesn't mean that they're going to let you take them out of their country. Uh, they must give you what we call an exit letter. But we had to go through our immigration. Um, this is complicated because in, in, in Adoption International, you have two governments that you got to deal with, two governments and a bunch of red tape. And so we were ready to go. We began to pack. We began to prepare. Um, that was December 26th. The 1st of January of 2013, which was just a couple of weeks, our immigration department sends us a very brief 
email that said an additional six-month investigation that had been instituted for all adoptive families. Don't call us. We'll call you. And so that was all we got. So ready to go. Now we're facing another six months, uh, more living by our phones. This was our life during that season. Um, Christina specifically had all of the immigration departments, all the warnings, all the, all the adoption agency, everybody on her phone had all her notifications turned up, and that phone was always dinging. And every time it dinged, we thought, that's the, that's the one. And so we started watching our children grow up in pictures again. Uh, they, were, they meant what they said our government did because it was September the 27th of that year before we heard back from them to say the investigation is complete, your paperwork's done, you're, you're ready to go. And so we took our children here to the fair, to what we call the redneck convention, you know, where they fry their bananas and their Reese cups and everything else. We did, we did that just to just to spend time with our children. We didn't know how long our trip was going to last. We thought we would be in country two to three weeks. Uh, but the phone dinged while we were at the, the fair. Uh, the Congolese government had issued a total suspension. No children were coming home. Uh, and so what do we do now? You know, we got our paperwork done. They're our children. Our government put us off six months. Now their government says no. Here's what we decided. We're going to go anyway. And we did that for a particular reason. That if they lifted the suspension, even for an hour, because things in that country change, and you'll see that, changes from minute to minute, day to day, a very volatile country. We wanted to be there, and we wanted to get our paperwork in. So we packed up for about four weeks, which we thought was gracious plenty, and we took off. And so if you got your notes, you'll see arrival in the Congo. The greatest gift that we can give is the name. October the 2nd, 2013, we arrived in country, a country that would be our home for the next two months, though we didn't know it. Uh, the airport was traumatic, for, you know, in its own. When you step off the plane, you're hit by the smell of burning trash. They don't have any way to deal with the trash over there, and so they burn it along the river, uh, the same river they get their water from. Not only that, but when, some, when the guerrilla forces take over in that country, and they all, they're always fighting, um, they always take the airport first. And so if you ever watch the TV program or the news in some of those countries where they set up the barricades, and you have to go wind through the barricades through security checkpoints to get in and out of the airport, that was our experience. People with guns, and it's like, man, you know, we're not in Kansas anymore. This is, this is different. Uh, they took us to an apartment, and the, our, we was one, the one of two apartments we stayed at. And it was right, this first one was right downtown, a lot of noise. Picture number three um, was when they brought our children to us for the first time. From that moment, we lived 24-7 with our, with our, with our kids. Uh, they only spoke Lingala. They understood a little bit of French, but you see the problem. <laughs> we don't speak Lingala nor French. Uh, and so that became our life. We had two children. They couldn't talk to us, and we couldn't talk to them. Uh, our, at first, our lawyer came around frequently. He was basically our lawyer slash bodyguard slash interpreter, uh, and he would help us communicate. Uh, we learned basic words and phrases like, I'm hungry, or you got to go to the bathroom, or stop it, you know, which we used a lot. One of the things we brought with us was a picture book. Uh, that picture book had our, our family in it. It had their, our home in it. had their bedrooms in it. had different things, aunts, uncles, everybody in it so that we could show them. We had sent this, a copy of that book over with them earlier in care packages that we were sent over. And so we thought it would be a way that we could um, just for them to get to know not only us but the kids at home. The lawyer asked our children, what do you want to be called? What name? Sean stood up straight and he said, Little John. Little John. He already knew his name, even before we got there. You see, in Christ, the greatest gift you can ever be given is the name. 
And the greatest thing you can ever give to anyone is that name. We were just called to do this physically. And so we went, we made one of uh, first of many trips to the DGM. That's the Department of General Migration. It's their immigration department. Uh, you don't do anything unless you go through them to start with. The answer was, of course, no. Uh, that was only the first of many trips there. <laughs> about three days in, I think the foster moms had threatened them pretty good, uh, but about three days all that wore off, and the honeymoon wore off, and the wailing and the crying and the issues began to come out. And... Um, the truth is this, life in the Congo is hard and the future is bleak. But God, it's your life without Christ. is bleak and your future is grim. But God, a very long, long two weeks passed. A lawyer calls us one day and says, get ready, I'm coming. So he gets us, they had lifted the curtain, so to speak, in the suspension just a little bit. We were able to slide our paperwork, as it were, in. And uh, we feel like that was only a, just a matter of prayer. If we wouldn't have been in country, if we would have waited, it would have, we wouldn't have got our paperwork in. Um, every day, it was our phrase that we lived by. He always told us, maybe tomorrow, maybe tomorrow, maybe tomorrow. Uh, eventually, the lawyers stopped calling as much. And when we called him, he wouldn't call us back. Uh, why this was so hard is we were living in a country um, where we didn't look like anybody else. We weren't allowed to leave the apartment. Uh, if you've ever been to a developing or third world countries, all the homes and businesses are surrounded by a gate, a compound, where a security guard is there. We weren't allowed to leave. We see we were seen by the Africans as colonials. Those many like those in the past who came to their country to force themselves and their ways and their customs on Africans. And so they did not see us in a very good light. Not only that, they saw, they have been taught that people like us, these white people who come over to adopt children, get these children and they harvest their organs and they sell them for profit. Potentially to, to take care of their older parents. And, and they believe this. They've been taught this their whole life. They had no reason not to. And so just imagine when we go out how they saw us. One of the things that we would do. that There's not a lot of protein going on in that country. When you eat. They eat a lot of potatoes. Those kinds of things. No meat. So week after week, we didn't have any meat to eat, and so we had packed some beef jerky in our bags. And I would watch the kids in one room, and uh, Christina would go in there, or I'd go in there, and we'd break off a little bit of this beef jerky, and we'd eat it. And it would, it would, we would just, oh, it's just like, oh, it's the best thing in the world, you know, just to have this little bit of meat. Uh, you see, we were, for the first time in our lives, uh, the marginalized minority. Now, you need to listen to me. Some of you ain't been in a country and ever experienced this in your whole life. We never had. We were in a country where we had no place. We had no power. We had no voice. And we were surrounded by those who were not like us, who made presumptions about us, though there was no basis for it. Let me tell you about it. One of our stories. We had to go to the DGM. That's the migration all the time. And I don't remember how many times it happened before the light finally came on. I'm a slow learner. But you would go in there up to a window. The windows had bars on it. And there's a guy sitting on the other side of that window. And you had your, you had your passport. And you had to stick, it, stick your arm in there. And, you know, the guy had to take your passport. If you didn't take your passport, you weren't going to see anybody. So I'm in Africa waving my arm through the bars. What do you think the problem is there? Arm white. Guess what he wouldn't do? Wouldn't take my passport. I mean, you had to fight to get to the window. You know, and I'm sitting there, you know, come on, you know, take it. He wouldn't take it. I finally realized it was raining, standing out there in the rain, that he wouldn't take it because I was white. And so what I had to do was stand back, or better yet, we learned stay in the car. And 
let our African lawyer get it in. And once he opened it up, he might have saw we were white then, but it's too late. He already, he already took it. We'd get in to see him that way. <coughs> Excuse me. So we only left the apartment. But we, one day we got to go to the zoo. Picture number four shows us on the way to the zoo. That was a, a pitiful zoo. Uh, that's another story. At that zoo, I was stalked by a monkey. Which, by the way, I have no use for monkeys. That monkey was chasing me, I'm telling you. He hung around the tree, followed me everywhere I went. But on the way, um, if you see in that picture number four, there's people everywhere. It had been raining, the roads would wash out, people would get stuck, you had to get out and push people. Um, it was a very unnerving trip for us because there were people around us, some of the dudes carrying machetes and stuff, walking to wherever they were going, and, and nobody liked us, and we were being... People around their car looking down at us, you know, why do you, have, why these white people in our country with these two black kids? And uh, it was quite a journey. That was normal when we went out. Um, but remember when we left, we left with four weeks worth of food. You see, uh, two weeks in, they did take us, take our paperwork. But four weeks in, our food began to dwindle. Uh, we began to ration our food out. Um, at the same time, kids began to make progress. We lived every day with each other and wasn't allowed to leave. And so, principle I want you to see here is, here is God's Word and His character gives us everything we need for life and godliness. So, we had been raising children for, I guess, 13 years or so there, 14 probably by then. And we realized by living 24-7 with the kids, that their greatest need that the children needed was that of grace. They didn't understand grace, you see. They had always had to take care of themselves. And so we committed to teach our children this one central principle, that everything comes from the Father, and the Father gives. Everything comes from the Father, and the Father gives. <laughs> because I can't, I can't cook water. Uh, Christina cooked all the food, uh, but I would serve the food. The Father always served the food. And one of the things that we did to teach our children is we brought them a backpack and it had toys in it. And we were confused for a while because they wouldn't play with their toys. They would just leave them in a bag, leave them zipped up, put them in the corner, and they would defend them. And so what I did is I got the bags of toys. And some of us might need to do this when we get home, remind our children that everything comes from the Father. I unzipped their bags with all the toys and I dumped both bags, all the toys together in the middle of the room. And I said, Daddy's toys. We called each other and then Papa Daddy and Mama Mommy. Uh, in that country, it's like Mr. And, and Mrs. Everybody is Papa and everybody's Mama. And so we eventually we just dropped the Papa and the Mama, and I just, we became Mommy and Daddy. And, um, but we would say, Papa Daddy's. And then I would take the toy, and I would hand it to him, and I said, and Daddy gives. Eventually, though we did that hundreds of times, um, they began to not only get the principle, but they began to enjoy everything that they had in a way. And it's, it's spiritual, and I'm hoping that the Lord will show you some of these things, because I'm not going to explain all of them. The Lord began to show us this central truth is true in your life as it is in theirs. Everything belongs to the Father, and the Father always gives good gifts to His children. And um, one day we're standing out on the, this little porch, the rains in Congo were intense, and we were just watching the rain. didn't have anything else to do. <laughs> and we had brought these little rain jackets over for the kids. And Sean was sitting there in his rain jacket, and me and him were just sitting there watching it rain. And he, he looks up at me, and he pats his jacket, and he says, Daddy's jacket. Daddy's jacket. He got it. Well, as we began to see trust and and that, but the good news is during this time, um, we got a call in to have our exit interview. Now, your exit interview is basically an interrogation that you have to go through uh, before they give you an exit letter. So when they give you the exit letter, you can leave. But until then, you're at their mercy. And so we got a call for the exit letter. This is wonderful. I mean, the interview went good. We were like, we were told a few days, y'all were out of here. Um, the people who, who went and interviewed before us went home with their children. We were next. There's no way. I mean, we were, we were the next in line 
Our exodus is coming. Maybe tomorrow. We had been in country for one month by then. Uh, the problem was our food ran out. Uh, we began to ration our food to make sure our children had enough to eat, uh, but we didn't. Uh, my, my razor that I was shaving with, I had charged it up before I left, and I didn't bring the cord with me. And I can remember the day it, you know, it ran out, you know, halfway shaved face. Um, it was the first time that me and Christina began to go to bed hungry because we didn't have anything to eat. Uh, most of us have never experienced that. I know I had never experienced it. Um, but we realized that hungry, that feeling of hungry was our kids' normal. Uh, God let us experience it. The lawyer became increasingly hard to get a hold of. And we, me and Christina, realized we had to begin to live in a culture. You know, we, had, we couldn't quit living in fear. We had to be in uh, exercise wisdom, but we had to start living. And so we had made friends with the guy who ran the apartment that we rented. Um, he, we told him our situation. He said, I got you. Don't worry about it. This is my driver. Uh, he can be trusted. He knows where white people can go and where they can't go. And so he'll make sure he takes you where you need to go and only where you need to go. And he'll take you to the safe places. And so we begin to live life, listen, as a marginalized minority. To where we had to go to certain places at certain restaurants at certain times. And we couldn't go other places. We had to go carefully where we went, with who we went. But we began to live. One funny, wonderful story. We found this Lebanese restaurant and uh, we hadn't eaten meat in a month and, and any protein really, not just meat, but uh, and ate a lot of soup and stuff like that, stuff, powder stuff, stuff we could pack with us. So we stopped at a Lebanese restaurants and splurged and we ordered some food. And uh, when we got back to our absolute bliss, they had accidentally put in a big old container of gelato in there. And I don't know if y'all, y'all know what gelato is. like glorified ice cream, really nice ice cream. Here was the wonderful problem. We couldn't speak the language. We didn't have a vehicle. So we couldn't take it back. So we were like, oh, God gave us free ice cream. And, and, and the kids had never had anything like that before. So we learned to celebrate those little wonderful graces uh, and one of those was internet access. So if you've got picture five, you see us FaceTiming our children. Um, our children at home uh, was going through their own journey. And like I said, they could tell their story and tell this. They were being passed around by, to fam- friends and family members in the midst of their life. They um, expected their brother and sister to come home any day. And they were home waiting. But we got to talk to them um, through FaceTime and other means. Um, but our kids began to form trust. They began to learn some English words that we would teach them, and we in turn were learning how to speak a little bit of their language. Um, They began to trust us. You see, one of the things that happened on the front end of this was that they had never really had a father in their life, and so they didn't really know what to do with me. And uh, and Eliana don't like me to tell this story, but it's a funny story. It is a true story. We brought little beach balls and stuff over with us, stuff we could lay flat and easy to pack but blow up. And so we would. there was this little courtyard in the apartment, a little grassy spot, and we could go out and play. And uh, we would go out and throw balls with them and stuff. And, and, um, but she would always wait till I turned around, and she'd beam me in the head with that ball. And uh, she did not like me at all to start with. And I was very careful not to make any physical contact with with her until she was ready and uh, I can remember that night we would go through our little routine of brushing our teeth and putting on lotion and those kinds of things and um, I can remember the first time she grabbed my hand it was a powerful daddy moment um, to realize that we were making progress Um, but as we were making progress with the children the DGM relationship at the immigration department was deteriorating and it was deteriorating rapidly as things do in that country. The principle here we learned was never underestimate the power of the love of family and the trauma of having no family. One of the last conversations we had with the DGM, the second to the last one actually, was a clear go home. No exit letters. No children are going home. You might as well leave. 
It was an older gentleman sitting behind a desk that always seemed to be deciding our future. Um, we couldn't understand any of the language, you know, but we can, you can tell by the tone of our conversation things are not going well. And finally the lawyer looked at us and said, we go, we go. And I had that picture book in my hand. And so I opened up the picture book and I slid it over to the guy sitting behind the desk and I said, this is my family. And the translator's translating. And, uh, and he said, your family? And I said, I said yes, sir. And, and I had Sean between my legs here and I put my hands on his face. I said, this is my son. I said, I would die for my son. And the, the older gentleman leaned back in his in his in his chair, and he started laughing. He said, <laughs> go home. And, uh, left, you know, the emotions uh, change as much as the country do with us. And You go between being mad and being sad that this older gentleman had never had the love of the father, or he would not have thought that was funny. And uh, so families, one by one, began to go home as the country issued a total suspension again no kids, go, no kids go home. One of those families uh, we had the privilege of getting to know was a, was a man named Michael. His wife had stayed home. Uh, I believe she was pregnant at the time. And he, had, he lived in the apartment with us. And they, when they brought in his child, his little, his little child was just a tiny little boy named Oliver Elvis. He lived in apartments with us 24 hours a day. We played together, ate together, did everything together. But his little boy had never been held, never been touched, never been loved, set in some kind of an orphanage in a, in a cradle and never touched. And so he was emotional. He would, he would set little Oliver in the floor and he would just sit there. He never cried. He never looked around, put a, put a truck in front of him and he would just sit there. we saw what was nothing less than a miracle, at least to us. As day after day, we began to see life come into that little boy's face. And he would begin to look around with his eyes, and Sean and Eliana would be jumping around everywhere, you know, being kids. And, and uh, he would, you know, he'd be looking at them, and eventually he reached up, grabbed that truck, started looking around. We saw that little boy begin to come alive. And we were there that day that he cried. See, he had never cried before. There was never any reason to cry because nobody was going to come and help. But his daddy was there now. And so he began to cry when he needed something. His dad would meet that need. It was the sweetest time. What a privilege to be able to be there. And we were there that day that Michael had to go home without his son. We expected a miracle. We had hundreds of people praying for us. Some of you in this room. God would deliver our kids Thanksgiving and coming home alone. This is, brothers and sisters, if I could underline a principle for you in life. If you are going to embrace a life by faith and, and reject comfortable Christianity as a lie that it is, uh, you need to understand this. The Lord knows. He's not going to tell you. Not going to tell you how tomorrow looks like. He's not going to tell you how that decision to obey him is going to turn out. He's not going to tell you. Why not? Because he wants you to trust him. That's what he's doing. That's what he was doing. We didn't understand it at the time. Thanksgiving Eve, you see, Christina would sleep in one room on a mattress. We had another mattress we'd slid off on the floor. The kids would sleep on it. And I slept in a futon in the other room. And oh, how I labored with God that night. How can coming home alone bring you glory? We've got all these people praying for us, God. I thought you wanted me to display the gospel, and you're about to send me home without my kids? I mean, how do I display God's character when I'm abandoning my children and re-traumatizing them again? How is this going to work, God? Thanksgiving Day, we got up, and we had one more shot. We were still hopeful. But the answer was no. A resounding no. Not only that, the guy took, my, took our paperwork and looked up. He said, uh, 
Your visa's about to expire. Y'all going to leave today. So all of a sudden, not only was it no, we had to leave and we had three hours to arrange foster care, buy plane tickets, pack up, say goodbye. We had two lawyers in country, um, an African man named Etty and uh, a big old African woman named Marie. Oh, she was, she was a big lady. She was intimidating when she walked in the room. And she, but she loved the kids. And so she, she came over to help us tell the children um, that it was not a not ever, but it was just not a not now. Um, she told us, you see, these kids have been disappointed many times in their life. And this is just another one. But whatever you do, don't cry. Because if you cry, you'll upset the children. Probably the hardest thing we ever had to do was to ask the Lord to keep our tears away. We had one hour. time we got it all arranged. One hour with our children. How would you have spent it? They came quickly and took our kids away. We stood there and watched in a... In the, in the upstairs apartment as, they, as our children got in a car and drove out of the compound and we never knew if we'd see them again. Uh, pictures number six is, is a picture with our children literally packed up about to leave. Um, the only thing we had left to give them was those baseball caps they have on their head. Those were ours. We were wearing them. And we gave them and told them to keep them for us. Uh, we held our tears back until they left and we fell in each other's arms. We were broken. We had to catch a plane. They were coming to pick us up. We didn't have time to grieve. We had to pack. And so we packed our stuff up and we found ourselves on an airplane alone. And if you ever flew an airplane, you know, they give you that little blanket. Uh, I put the blanket over my head and, and wept. We were broken. We were confused. And meanwhile, back home, our family had just gathered around the table for Thanksgiving. When they got the call, they were coming home alone. They came home with no fanfare uh, broken. We came home to a growing church plant. That's why I want to tell you the story. Some of you never heard it. We came home to a growing church plant, to a business to run with children at home that was just as broken as their parents. Life went on. The outlook was bleak. Uh, we were told six months, one year, but probably never. Uh, picture number seven shows Christmas that year. As you can imagine, Christmas that year was a struggle. Uh, we, we hung up our stockings and we had their gifts sitting there and we didn't know after Christmas whether to take the stockings down or to leave them up and so we left those stockings hanging there and those pictures in front of our fireplace for a long time thinking maybe tomorrow maybe tomorrow we heard people say things like well you tried or at least you got your kids here you need to understand something in your life as it is in their life adoption is a past tense experience. You see, you are not adopted children of God. You're only children of God. There is no children like this and children like that. In Christ and in our family, there's only children. You see, the children in Africa, our children in Africa was not more our children, but they were not less our children either. They were our kids. Brothers and sisters, do you know this? That this is your story. We're not home either. We're stuck here, right? Waiting on our Father to come get at Gus. Hebrews 13 is our hope, isn't it? It is our God who says, I will never leave you and I will never abandon you. So, what are we to do? part of our children's in America and part of our children in the Congo. Here's what we're not going to do. We're not going to go about life like everything's okay. We're going to get our children home. 
Because they're our children. And if my God don't abandon his kids, neither will we. So we began to make plans to get our children home. Even if it cost us our life. But by God's preserving grace, on May 27, 2014, we get a message out of the blue. It said, your children are two out of 15 out of hundreds that we're going to allow to come home. <laughs> you didn't have to tell us because, remember, we stayed packed. We'd been packed for two years, <laughs> ready to go. So back to the Congo we went. Principle here, the Lord loves and provides for those we love better than we can ever hope to. The Lord loves your children and your spouses and your family more than you can ever hope to love them. Our children were brought to us again, and they were brought to us empty-handed. There's a spiritual picture here if you get that. They didn't bring anything with them, and neither do you when you come to Christ. We wondered, would they hate us? Are they angry at us? Did they lose everything that we taught them? And here's the truth, brothers and sisters. Two hours after they brought them to us, you can see picture number eight if you want to throw that up there. That's, that's them being brought up to us for the second time. About two hours after that picture, it was just like they had never left. It honestly was like God had froze them and thawed them out just before we got there. They had forgotten nothing. It was like we had never left. It was nothing short of miraculous because they had not only not lost what we had taught them, they had never lost hope. They knew we were coming back to get them. You see, God had given us a very precious gift. He had caused us to get stuck in the Congo because if we would have come home, I would have had to go back to a church plant and a business and Christina would have been there with the kids doing everything that she could. Instead, we got both stuck together in the Congo and had nothing to do but invest in these child's lives. It was grace that got us stuck in the Congo. And it was grace that caused us to come home alone. So that we might understand what it means, how good this gospel is today. That we are waiting in hope for a God to come and get us. And he will not fail in his promises. He taught us all these things. I'll pause for a second to even tell my own family. God calls us to remember. So that we might enjoy and remember his faithfulness. He is faithful. He gave us those things. He designed our journey. And my journey and your journey don't look the same. But we all have them to live. <laughs> After some effort, because everything in that country takes effort and money, we got our precious exit letter, that thing we had been fighting for for two years. We finally had it in our hand. You didn't have to tell us twice. To the airport, we went as quickly as we could. Principle, God calls, God's call to radical obedience always brings radical favor. Radical obedience brings radical favor. You want to see radical grace? Embrace radical obedience and you'll see it. I promise you. We arrived late to the airport. Multiple checkpoints. Probably half a dozen to go through. We're doing our baggage, filling out all our paperwork. We look up 15 minutes before our flight. Like we're not going to make it. We're not going to make it. Our lawyer disappears. You don't ask questions in that country. You just mind your own business. Do what, do what he tells you to do. Uh, he shows back up and says... Stephen and Christina, your flight has been delayed. You will make this flight. And uh, so we relaxed a little bit, but we still had an interrogation to go through. That's when they take you into a back room behind a man, sitting behind another one of those older men, sitting behind a desk that don't speak your language, but you're supposed to talk to him. And uh, we did, the interview went amazingly well, and the guy just kept on talking, and we were looking at the clock going, Ooh, now the clock's getting closer again. And so Christina put together some broken French and said, plane, you know, got to go. You know, can you help us? And he escorted us. He sent a man in. They escorted us to a shuttle. And the plane came into view. And uh, We were glad to see that plane. And the journey of obedience. Don't expect to be praised nor even understood. 
When you do what the Lord tells you to do, don't expect anybody to be sitting around there applauding because they're not coming. So we got on the shuttle. Kids were like, live on, live on. You know, they saw the plane. They were happy. We were happy too. Uh, so we got on this little shuttle. The plane is on the tarmac. You had to drive out there on the shuttle. And an African lady comes on the shuttle with us. And, and she looks at Christina and said, did you adopt these children? And, and Christina smiled and said, yes, we did. The lady says, you're going to traffic those kids, aren't you? We know what you're going to do. We know what you're going to do. And so she looked at those kids. She said, you ought, do you know what's going to happen to you when these people get you over there? And she begins to speak to them in French to tell them what's going to happen to these kids when we're going to take them over there and what we're going to do to them. And she just lights into us. And we put our hands over the kids' ears so they can't try to hear whatever she was saying because we didn't understand French. We just knew it wasn't good. Um, Luckily, it was a short shuttle ride to the plane. Uh, she was irate. And before she gets out of the shuttle, she turns around and looks at us, and she said, pedophiles. Still irate. We get, we get out. We didn't know what to do, you know, uh, trying to stay away from her. We go to the first checkpoint, and she's talking to the, the security guy there, pointing to us and hollering and... and uh, we get through that checkpoint, and we still got two more checkpoints to go through before we let us on the plane. By then, we're around more people than everybody else that was getting on the plane. And so we separated from us, and she's still spewing her hatred and pointing to us over there. And this was my prayer. Oh, Lord, judge the heart between her and us. And if anything that is true about us that she's saying, you judge us. But, Lord, if it's not true... Judge her. I, we got our children as far as away we can. But we were worried that she's going to be sitting right beside us on the plane, you know. And, uh, but we were elated to see that she was in first class. This is the important part of the story. Pay attention now. When we got on the plane, she's sitting in first class right there. Praise the Lord, we were in the back of the bus, right? We were in the cheap seats. We were like, she was just fine. So we walked by her and went by and got in our seats. We put the kids at the window seat and we hemmed them in. Christina sitting behind me with Eliana and me with Sean. And we were like, Lord, I hope she stays up in first class. And uh, I, I can't describe to you what it felt like for that plane to take off the ground. Knowing when that plane left the ground, there's nobody going to stake our kids away again. And they couldn't stop us now. It was June the 4th, 2014, and Christina and I's 20th wedding anniversary. And you're never too old to do what the Lord calls you to do. The plane uh, seatbelt light went off, ding, ding, you know. And I looked down the aisle, and who's coming? That woman. Now, you've got to understand, my wife's from New Jersey. She'd about had all she could stand that woman. And I was like, Lord, have mercy. We're going to get on YouTube this afternoon. Because here she comes. And we'd about had it. Uh, and I said, honey, is that that woman that called us a pedophile? She said, yep. And I said, oh, Lord, help us. And, uh, she gets about halfway down the aisle. And I realize something wrong with her. So she gets a little closer. And her ankle was swelled up twice the size. And she is in intense pain. The reason she's coming to the back of the plane was because there was nobody sitting back there. And so she lays on the back of the plane for the next eight hours, screaming and hollering and throwing up. They called for a doctor in the plane. There was no doctor. For the first time in my life, the fear of God hit me of the grim future of those who mess with God's kids. You see, it was the fullness of time. And God had opened a door, and nobody was going to shut it. It scared me. <laughs> I never prayed that prayer again. And we prayed for her, but there was no relief for her. When we got off the plane, some eight hours later, they wheeled her away in a wheelchair. 
George Whitfield says this, We are immortal until our work on earth is done. Brothers and sisters, if you're going to make an eternal difference in life, you've got to believe that. So we arrive, picture number nine, with much joy and celebration this time. Picture number 10 shows them sleeping in their beds for the first time. They never had a bed before. Picture number 11 shows you the difference uh, between then and now. The truth is this. Uh, if this was a book, that would only be the introduction. This is what I want you to see. The real heart of life is in the everyday that's why John wrote Revelation. That's why Jesus wrote letters to the churches to teach them how to persevere in the midst of the heart of everyday life. Often the Lord uses your everyday gifts to do extraordinary things. Ordinary gifts. Can I tell you one more story? I think it will help us bring us to a close. We were flying into New Jersey and... and uh, Christina, we didn't always sit together because of the plane tickets we had to buy. It was a whole other story. And, um, but Christina had Eliana, and I had Sean. Uh, of course, they don't speak hardly any English still, very little. And so I sat by, beside a lady of Asian descent, very quiet, mild-mannered lady. She had her headphones in. She never even looked up the whole flight. Sean was sitting right beside of her, and he's watching the movie Cars, and he keeps hitting the rewind button and watching it over and over and over again. But he wasn't screaming, and I didn't care. You know, he was happy. Still likes that movie for some reason. And uh, it was driving this lady crazy. Why this old white guy had this little young African boy? She, she had figured out that I had adopted him, but it was driving her insane. It's finally, her curiosity. I mean, we are, we're getting really close to New Jersey by the end. Uh, the flight was almost done. And she said, sir, can I ask you a question? I said, well, yes, ma'am. And, uh, she, she, was so, she said it so, so well. Um, she said, why would someone like you at this late juncture of life choose to adopt? It's a really nice way to say why would this old crusty guy choose to adopt at this point in your life? I said, well, ma'am, you see, I'm a daddy. I know how to be a daddy. I'm already a daddy. And Sean's never had a daddy. So if I'm a daddy and Sean needs a daddy, why wouldn't I want to be his daddy? And she sits back in her chair and she says, my God. She said, me and my husband spent our whole life where we couldn't wait for our kids to get out of the house where we could do what we wanted to do. She said, my God. my God. She just sat there, just shaking her head as we landed in New Jersey, wrecked. The plane landed. She thanked me for the conversation, and she went on her way. You see, brothers and sisters, Luke says this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. For whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? So, brothers and sisters, could it be that God has already made you who you are so that you can display the gospel in a unique and costly way in order to display Christ more clearly to those who are already around you. So my encouragement to you this morning is to say yes to discipleship. Say yes to sacrifice. Say yes to obedience. And rest in, the, rest in your today, even when you don't know the future. For our Father promises us He will come and take us home. So be encouraged today. That our Lord is alive. Our adoption decree is declared. Our home is prepared. And He's coming to get His kids. And He will not abandon us. On that we can bank on. Let's pray together. So Lord, 
All of us have a story. All of us have a life to live. And the truth is, some of us know this more truly than others. None of us know how long our life is. But we all have a choice to make. How will we live in light of what you've done for us? Oh God, today we pray that we would spit out say phenomenal Christianity in this pursuit of some kind of American dream that doesn't exist, Lord, and we would embrace a life that reflects your Son. Who, while we were enemies, died for us. Oh Lord, did not the disciples want you to set up the kingdom now and then? They didn't want to wait. But you told them they had to wait. Lord, we're still waiting. And we long, Lord, for you to come and take us home. Where we can rest from our labor. But Lord, you have given us this one life to live. And may we live it for your glory. And so, Lord, now as we stand and worship you, as we celebrate communion together, as we bring our offerings and lay them at your feet, Lord. May all of what we do, especially as we walk out the doors, be done for your honor and glory. To make you look good, God, is our purpose in life. Lord, I would pray for those whose God has put something in front of they would say yes and obey, obey with what they put in front of them. Lord, we love you. We trust you. Now, Lord, we just want to enjoy you. We want to worship you. We want to receive from you now, God. The fullness of the Spirit and the grace. And so, Lord, we ask you. We are those children. We have nothing in our hands. Nothing but our needs, and our problems, and our issues. And we stand to lay them at your feet and to worship your name. Oh God, as we leave today, I pray there would be some who would not pick those things back up. Who would leave them at the altar, at the cross, and walk in fullness and freedom so that they may live a life of obedience and joy in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.